It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello to everyone, just waiting for James and Calvin to rock up, try some uh, fancy stuff tonight, see if uh, we can get our, well, see if we can get James to actually talk today. James! Hello! Oh my word. Oh wow. It we feels can hear you. Here. I, this is a privilege that I never thought <laughs> would really be as privileged as it is. It's... I mean... It's just, it's huge. Um, I, I want to thank my mother, um, my dad, obviously. Uh, everyone who's been involved in the production. Um, DreamWorks Studios, clearly. Uh, and finally, just really the whole community around the project. Welcome, Calvin. How's it going? Good. We have James. Three oh. people on a podcast. The Who tripod, back together. <laughs> um, do you want to all shut up and I'll play the intro tune yeah right. fancy stuff happening oh, let's see if it actually works back in a whole new capacity three of us are back into tennis podcasting it's huge uh you may remember and actually if you've been listening on itunes or spotify or any of the other things that are available you'll know that we've been back for a couple of weeks but we've now got our theme tune back we've got our ukulele on the beach back we've got the dodgy squeaky audio back we've got george belshaw back of course hello george Hello, James. And we've got Calvin Beth on back as well. How's it going? It's, it, it's good to have three people on a podcast. Uh, it's good to have two grand fans within, what, 
three weeks of each other. It doesn't leave us any shortage of things to talk about, that's for sure. Um, it's Thursday evening, which if you're listening live, you'll know. If you're listening on the podcast, you won't know. Uh, it means the French Open draw has only come out a couple of hours ago. We've had a bit of time. We're going to go through all of that. And we're, of course, going to go through what's happened in the last couple of weeks in Rome. George, why don't you, first of all, uh, fill us in on... Well, why, don't you, why don't we start with Rome? Why don't we start with the women's tournament? Just just talk us through some of the big news lines from, from everything that happened. It feels a long time ago now. I'm, I'm a bit too kind of hyped about the French Open now. That's all happened. But um, just, the... just, box, just box your French Open hype for one second. Um, the... I think the main headline was Simona Halep, obviously. Um, she's now won back-to-back tournaments since, you know, kind of coronavirus shut down the tennis season. Um, she didn't go to the US Open, but she went to Prague to win a clay court tournament. And then she has now turned up in Rome and won that as well. So, yeah, she is pretty much establishing herself as the um, dominant clay court force we all knew she was. Um, then I suppose the other kind of big headline women's news was that Joe Conta uh, split with her coach Thomas Hogstead. That was a um, was to be fair just a trial period through the kind of US um, hardcore swing. Um, she obviously went out pretty early in the US Open, but um, I know Calvin has some views on this that we'll come to in a little while. But uh, it, it hasn't lasted long. They've ended it, and he was. Uh, Sat in the stands, I believe, for an Ostapenko match. So he's done already. <laughs> well, let, let's start with, because you've mentioned it there, you know, Joe's split with her coach. She's been through quite a few different people in the last couple of years. Trial periods as coach. Calvin, are they ever trial periods or is everyone always on a trial period? Um, I think trial period, I, I have a sort of a bit of an issue with trial periods because I don't really know what they're there for. Um, and I'm not sure that the players or the coach ever really know what they're there for. I think if it's purely on a basis, to, if it's to see how, if the player wants to see how the coach works and what their methods are, I, I don't think that's a problem whatsoever. And I think that's sort of, that's often a good thing. But I think what they can often turn into is if the player is wanting the coach to sort of come up with something, um, a sort of a magic bullet that can impress them in a two-week period what you end up getting there is the coach ends up sort of trying to find something that they maybe wouldn't find in a normal circumstance just to try and impress the player and maybe sometimes the player's wanting a bit something a bit more and, and coaching isn't really about that I think this is one of the sort of things that a lot of people have a confusion with that coaching isn't just about telling players what they need to do better it's so much more that it's setting in an environment that the player can develop in. And it's a communication, especially better, the better the player gets. It's sort of, it's just how they communicate and that kind of thing. And it's a development. And for that reason, that's why I don't really like trial periods, unless they're purely to see, do we get on? Mm. But, um, if that makes sense. I don't, I, I just, I'm not a fan of them as a whole, especially because generally I think, at that level, the player knows what the coach is like. It's not like you're... I, I get, get if it's a bit lower down because the player might never have met the coach in question. They might have been put onto them by an agent or something like that. Yeah. So, so realistically, I mean, maybe just for the layman, 
at that level, you know, elite level, what can a coach actually provide to a player? Because realistically, they're not going to be changing the way massively they hit the ball on any particular shot. What can no. she offer? I think it's more sort of what what it, it's a few things. It's sort of the tactical, how well they scout players. That's a, a large thing at that area because a lot of it is around the match court. Yeah. Um, what their sort of debriefs on matches are like. If if it's a good communication, are they asking the right questions on the women's tour as well? Now we have to take into account in these times that they can go on court and make an impact mm-hmm. um, mid match. Not so well, not at all on the men's side. Um, and a lot of the time, I think it's why you find at the top level that they go for sort of recently retired players is that they, the players are often just looking for somebody who they think has been there already and can yeah. offer them that kind of advice. But it's not, I think, again, that's one that my dad always asks me when, when, sort of, when they talk about Federer's coach. And he's always like, well, what can they teach Federer? They weren't as good as him. And it's, <laughs> like, it's not about just teaching the player something it's often at that level the higher up you get it's just a com- it's a conversation yeah it, it's sort of like you know what did you think to that well i thought this okay that's interesting maybe we can do this maybe and then the player might go yeah i'm not sure of that it's it's, it's a conversation it's somebody to just bounce ideas off well i guess you know if you look at modern i mean to take football as an example i think there's more and more of a, an appetite for coaches who haven't necessarily been footballers. You know, you Absolutely, at, yeah. Yeah, Jose yeah. Mourinho didn't play at the top level. Julian Nagelsmann didn't play at top level. Even, you know, there are Pep Guardiola, okay, he played at a very high level, but when he says to a striker, I want you to do this, they could very easily turn around at him and say, well, you've never played up front, you didn't score very many goals, but... I suppose it's, it's you don't need to have been uh, a horse to be a great jockey, George. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, just going back to Calvin's point about what they offer. I mean, so, sometimes it's like <laughs> I, think, I, I think about Murray when I'm talking about this, but like you watch his documentary and see like the relationship between him and Jamie Delgado. Like you, you're getting Delgado trying to like pick positives out of like really bad situations sometimes. Yeah. I think just sometimes it, you just need a relationship with someone you kind of bond with, kind of trust, know has your intentions at heart. And, and, and that is quite hard, I think, for a, a single player, particularly in a, you know, a lot of less so with the kind of top men, male guys, but you know, on the women's tour and with someone like Conta where there's been so much chopping and changing for a long time, it, it must be really hard to kind of build that kind of trusting relationship. Um, so while I don't necessarily agree with trial periods, I, I do think there is some merit to trying to see if you do kind of seamlessly fit with that person personally. Um, and from that Hogstead Conta scenario, I mean, Laura Robson actually really predicted very quickly, didn't she? She said, I think this is going to be, a terrible match um, because they're both quite strong-willed people um, and, and that kind of proved to be the case but yeah I think Joe's a difficult one in general because she's got her own kind of one-track mind she believes in this process that she's working on I think she is quite a hard person to coach I'd imagine from the outside looking in I think as well on like if we just sort of talk about the, the situation with with sort of recently retired or, or ex-players coaching there's two major problems that, that that sort of tends to hit is one that you'll always get players always think that they have to sort of that the player their coach ex-players always think the player they're coaching has to play the same way that they used to play 
and and they'll sort of just sort of try and recreate that, whether it be the way that they used to practice or the way that they actually play the game. Um, and the other thing is this sort of thing, this sort of phrase that we have in coaching called the knowledge trapdoor, where whereby um, a co- a former player who's a coach they find it difficult to teach some teach a particular thing because they've forgotten what it's like to not know how to do that if that makes sense Mm. and and so to be able to teach it from if you to a player who can't do it when they could do it brilliantly it's 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 difficult you know it's sort of imagine like (laughs) if you were to ask a concert pianist to tell you exactly what keys they press at each time they wouldn't be able to do that. They would yeah. have to slow it right down and say, right, I press this key now, then this one, then this one, because they've forgotten what it's like to not know how to play it. And that's what I think the problem is with, with guys who've been exceptional players. Well, it's a different, you know, not to get too neurological about it, but it's a different part of the brain. If, yeah. I, if I said to you, I don't know if, you, if you've worn a tie in about 15 years, Calvin, probably not. But if I if I said to you, can you tell me how you tie your tie or how you do up your shoelaces and to- told you to forensically talk through each stage, you'd find it very hard. Yeah. Because it's a totally different part of the brain. The cerebellum deals with stuff that you've learned to do. And really other parts of the brain deal with stuff that you're learning. And, and yeah. actually, there's a good example in football, which is when Glenn Hoddle became a manager at yeah. Tottenham, he would say to players, look, all you have to do is take the ball in here and then knock a 60-yard pass here and yeah. then go up and do this. And they went, well, Glenn, we can't do that. And he would do it yeah. you know, at the age of 40. And, and you're absolutely right. A great player does not necessarily make a great coach. And I, I think that's probably what the great skill in coaching is. It's not being able to do something. It's being able to explain to someone exactly how you necessarily can do it or or be able to communicate that. It's entirely that. I mean, it's funny you say that, because I literally say when, when, whenever in coaching courses this is explained, the example that is always used is Glenn Hoddle. Oh, all really? <laughs> yeah, all the time. And for that particular story. <laughs> like yeah. that he wants to, you know, I think it was a, foot, a particular footballer that, that couldn't do it, and he sort of went, he got so fed up, Hoddle got so fed up that he couldn't do it, he took the ball himself and just drilled one in and did it perfectly. <laughs> and the player's sort of confidence just... just visibly disappeared yeah. um but exactly um yeah. but yeah. yeah i mean what you say, i think you're right in what you're saying i think this is something that again that that people don't sort of comprehend is that there's two parts to coaching there's knowledge of the game and mm. there's knowledge of how to express that knowledge of the game yeah. and play x players undoubtedly have knowledge of the game but there's nothing in being a brilliant player that would be able that would qualify you to be able to express how to communicate that knowledge of the game to somebody else. Yeah. I was just wondering, Calvin, if they, uh, if they take you through the walk of the brain, like James did on your coaching courses as well. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that. No, it's, it's funny though, because when I did the, my level five, which is the highest, the, the last one that you can do is that the first sort of three, it was a three day module was all about sort of leadership and, and communication. And when I'd, I'd never done anything like that before, and when I'd sort of seen this, the schedule, I was like, oh, this is just going to be terrible. Like, why can't we get on court and hit some balls? But it, it, mm. was, it all sort of made sense, you know, and it sort of it was a real eye-opener of like, right, okay, now I get it. Yeah. It, it, it's a total game-changer, I think, and, and it's one of the great things about modern sport. I, and I think it has accelerated massively. 
in the but line. it's also you know it's like I think though you know we don't want to get too much into football again but if you look at if you look at Jurgen Klopp he, he's what when, fundamentally what he is is a, he's a brilliant communicator yeah that, that, that's what he is you know when you look at it, you go is he, a, is he a tactical genius well no he, he's good at it but he's not he's not sort of some genius that's doing things that no one else had done but what what he does manage to do is get players to do what he wants them to do he's a communicator mm-hmm. yeah exactly um, let's move on from coaching a little bit because, George, the other news line you mentioned is that Simona Halep is, is played 2-1-2 right in the, uh, in the clay court season now, although I appreciate that Caroline Pliskova did retire from the, the final in Rome. But uh, what sort of form do you think she comes into the French Open? I mean, you know, it should be obvious to say perfect form, no? Yeah, well, I mean, not many other players have a proper form guide on clay. She's about the only one, really. Um, mm. And, yeah, she looks pretty flawless. I mean, even if she didn't have a form guide, she's who I would be picking to win the French Open, as I'm sure many of us kind of feel the same on this. She is, to me, the clearest, best clay court player out there. Um, and the and also, on top of that, is clearly one of the world's best players on any surface now. So, yeah, I mean, she's in great form and doesn't look at all rusty with a lack of, you know, ma- I, I suppose she has had match play, but, you know, she doesn't look like she's been negatively impacted by deciding against going to New York, as that might be the case with other players who haven't had the chances to win every single match and therefore get quite a few matches under their belts. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose... You know, we're going to talk about it later as well with the men's game, but it, it must make a massive difference. The the difference between playing on clay for maybe two weeks going into the French Open and playing on clay for, you know, if you didn't go to the US, you've probably been, been playing on clay for five or six. That must make a huge difference, mustn't it? Yeah, and uh, we, we, we did kind of talk about this last week a little bit about like whether it's better to kind of go and get matches on hard or stay on clay the whole time. Um, Halep seems to have kind of had the best of both worlds, really. She got a load of matches on clay by virtue of winning Prague um, before the US Open. And then she's had another couple of weeks to practice on clay. And then she's got another load of matches by winning Rome straight after. So in terms of a a perfect schedule, assuming there's going to be no burnout, um, that's probably pretty much it. But I appreciate not everyone can... uh, just turn up and win every single match like Halep can. <laughs> well, no, quite. Um, we, we should also look at what happened in Rome in the men's game. Um, Novak Djokovic has now, I believe, or, or according to the notes that you sent me, George, passed Pete Sampras's total of weeks at number one. Uh, I know there'll be a lot of people out there who will get annoyed if we don't talk about that. Um, <laughs> Calvin, how significant do you think that stat about week spent at number one really is is it, is it is it a good one to kind of judge players careers by um yeah i think so especially seen as in in this era as well because there's there's sort of there's three of the top five players of all time in there plus andy murray who's a top 20 player of all time as well mm. um so i think in that respect it's it's probably the hardest period to have spent time at number one that there's ever been even, you know, Sampras, and, and I rate Sampras massively highly, but in in sort of his career, in terms of players at number one, he had he had Agassi for a little bit, um, and then 
who rivaled him, but I guess he went in and out. And I'm not sure, although he was world number one, I don't think he was a um, he was he was really sort of that much of a rival in that respect. And he had Courier early doors. Mm. But, um, it was basically Samfras was the only reason when Samfras came down to um, well, the only, only reason Samfras sort of dropped from number one a lot of the time was he'd not defended the points from the year before. It wasn't really people taking over him, was it? No. No, exactly. And I, I suppose, I mean, I would always think of, I mean, pe- people always, when they criticise Federer, for example, they, you know, irrespective of the number one stage, they always look at his early Grand Slam finals and go, well, who did he beat? And, you know, there's names from there who are pretty insubstantial. And he did have three or four years as number one right at the beginning where, you know, Nadal was only really a clay court player and Djokovic certainly wasn't even on the team. So I would question whether, you know, maybe those first three or four years he would probably... most. I think a lot of people would say they are not particularly talented first couple of years because he basically... Was, was beating nobody. And I know a lot of people would look at certain areas of tennis. You know, Lendl, Lendl's got a tremendous number of years, at world, uh, weeks at world number one. And I think there's a lot of people out there who wouldn't rate him, you know. <laughs> We're back to your anti-Lendl agenda. Well, no, I don't have an agenda, George. <laughs> he's saying that he's got a hell of a lot of weeks at world number one for a bloke who took a long time to win a Grand Slam and probably doesn't have as many as really anyone else who's got as many Grand Slams, you know, in the same in the same kind of bracket. Do you not think? Poor Ivan. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I was too young when all this was happening. You um, weren't even born! <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> but you're allowed to have an opinion. I'm not going to stop you having an opinion for things that happened before you were born. No, I know, but, but I, I was just going to say that you were. Uh, I remember we had a podcast maybe a year ago where you uh, really went after poor old Ivan. It just sounds like I'm, I'm not Whoa. sure if he, he hurt you in a previous life or something. <laughs> I do think to a de- I do think to a degree that the number one rankings changed a bit since then, though, because I think that, that there wasn't so much. As, I mean, McEnroe, I guess, was a big rival of Lendl's for a long period, and and he wasn't playing everything either. So I'm not sure how bothered he was at that stage by being world number one either. I think he sort of got to the stage where Sam Frost did at the end, where it was just about racking up the Grand Slam titles. And I think Federer's sort of reached that stage as well now. Mm. And I guess, you know, number one, we all remember when Murray realised he could get number one by the end of the year and he packed a whole load of extra tournaments off to his show. And, And frankly, I think the state he's in now, I still trace it back to that, you know, back end of the season when he just pushed himself a long way beyond really what his body probably could take. But that is a conversation for a whole other day. Yeah, um, but I mean, I, th- I think on, on the Djokovic thing, the, the last thing, I mean, I've, I've sort of said for a while that I think it, what, what it is testament to, I, I think he probably is the best player of all time, but I'm certain that he's the best match player of all time. Mm. And I think that that's what being having the number one ranking record suggests that when it comes to purely I think what when you're talking about the greatest player of all time you've got to include like do they transcend the game and I think that's where Federer sort of steps steps way ahead of him yeah um, but in terms purely of putting the ball between the lines and over the net I think Djokovic is probably the best ever at that mm. yeah I think that's a fair point and he you know he is now I think uh, I'm just looking at the numbers just now 
23 weeks away from overhauling Federer at the top of the list. Right. Um, he's obviously number two at it. So that's basically half a year, which I think we would expect him to do at this point, wouldn't we? Yeah, but I think the only sort of the, the way the tennis ranking works is that the more dominant you are one year, the less likely you are to stay at the ranking of, of the same sort of distance in points the year after. So he's pretty much got to win everything he won up until that stage. Yeah. And, you know, so he's got the, he's obviously, he's got the Aussie Open. He didn't do great at the O2 though last year, did he? He didn't qualify. So he didn't no. qualify from the groups. So you can rack up some nice points there. Worth well, well, yeah. saying he's keeping a fair amount of points from stuff like Wimbledon as well, that he's not had the chance to lose. So I, yeah. I, I think it's April he's going to get it i'm pretty yeah. sure he's going to get it let's be honest yeah, he's, same, yeah. he's going to go and win that in australia that's the only real yeah issue he'll have but um well he's not even, going to lose a, he's not going to lose early enough to drop so many points he, even if he, even if he loses semis or final yeah exactly although are they both team and rafa are on nine thousand now i think Djokovic I, is only on 10 maybe 11 now right. i'm not 11, sure to Rome. Is it? okay so there is a number it's just um, gone up after Rome since yeah. I last checked. But. Neither of those two have great indoor seasons usually, though, do they? So, no, um, but... um, Let's move on, um, because one of the big results in Rome that we have to talk about is Rafa Nadal losing on clay. I mean, that alone is worthy of discussion, but losing to Diego Schwartzman. George, maybe you could tell us your take on the match initially. Um where did it all go wrong for Rafa? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, Diego played really well. That has to be said. I mean, he obviously got to the the final, so he was in good enough form to do that. Um, he played a cracking match with Shapovalov in the uh, semi-finals as well. Yeah. That was a re- real, real humdinger of a, a finish. That, if uh, in case you missed it, want to go back and watch that. Um, you know, Rafa didn't look particularly comfortable to me. He was pulling out a lot of drop shots, which isn't typically his game. Um, kind of looked quite panicked in big moments. Sometimes it worked for him. Um, other times it didn't. Um, I, d- I do think you have to give Diego a lot of credit, but it, it, it did strike me as a rusty Rafa, really. Um, but that, that shouldn't, again, really be an issue for Schwartzman because he, he lost first round to Cam Norrie and was pretty pants in that. Um, so yeah, but he got not, a lot of tennis out of that. He played for about he got some tennis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I mean, as, as Calvin will say, I mean, Rafa, you know, trains how he plays matches. If if any player can kind of replicate match scenarios, he he is probably one of the better ones. But he did strike me as a little bit rusty. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's hard to read too much into it. I know we'll go on to the French Open stuff after it, but the facts that he has lost and the fact he's got team in his half of the draw, I think is probably making me lean now towards Novak in that situation, really. Calvin, how damaging do you think that, that Schwartzman defeat is for, not for Rafa's reputation, but for his overall kind of chances going into this French Open? Um, I don't think he's dropped out of the top two favourites. But he's... He's a bit of a strange one because he he, he does get more um, more anxious about stuff like that than than you would think he ought to, judging by the fact that he's the best clay court player ever. Mm. Um, but I thought, I found it a strange match because as as great as Schwartzman played at the end, it came down to Rafa just missing balls that he makes ninety eight times out of a hundred. 
even mm. right at the end, there was one, I forget what the score was, but it was a big point, and he'd set up the point perfectly, and he had a sort of inside-out forearm, the one that he loves for a winner, and he put it, like, nearly wider the doubles alley. And mm. it was just one of those that you think, you know, it's one of those that you would say normally when someone else misses it, that you'd go, that's the difference with Nadal, he doesn't miss that ball. Mm. And, he, and he missed it. So, and he has games, he has matches like that just every so often, but they tend not to come at the French Open. Yeah. Um, I mean, Clay obviously is his complete domain, but we've had a slightly, well, a much shorter Clay Court season than we might have expected. We discussed it last week that he will have had more time on the surface than, than really anyone else because I think probably he decided. I mean, I, I know, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on Rafa here, but. I think realistically, probably a good couple of months ago, he decided he wasn't going to play the US Open. Is that a fair thing to say? Go on, George, you go first. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, yeah, I mean, he was always very kind of anxious about committing himself to it. Um, I, don't, I don't think, to be honest, he believed it was going to go ahead when he was really asked about it. We all, um, the media kind of had a bit sit down with him. Um, that must have been June or July now. I can't remember which one it was. Probably July, yeah. actually. Um, and it, you got the impression he didn't think it was going to go ahead. And, of course, the situation was a lot worse in New York than it ended out to be. But, yeah, I mean, let's be honest. For his body going through the kind of grueling play he plays to win the French Open, the idea of coming into that from the back of another Grand Slam just two weeks before when, you know, he wasn't, going to gain anything points-wise. I know, I know points isn't necessarily the most important thing to him, but if, if there was the risk of losing, you know, 2,000 points at the US Open, that might have convinced him to play. Mm. Um, if he'd have known Novak Djokovic was going to be disqualified in the last 16, I suspect <laughs> he might have played. Um, but no one, no one could see that coming. Um, so, yeah, I, I, this was obviously the one, and it is worth saying again, you know, he's this is his chance now to equal... Federer's Grand Slam record um, and and one final thing I'd just say on him in general you know if you look at his first couple of rounds of matches you know Igor Gerasimov to start with and then Mackenzie McDonald or a qualifier I mean those are two good matches for him to find his feet get comfortable again on court um, I'm not foreseeing too many problems until you know the, the very latter stages as is always the case with him to be honest. I mean, Calvin, um, you know, George has already kind of pre uh, foreshadowed his draw there. I, I suspect you would agree with him that really we're, we're talking about second week with Rafa before anything really happens, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, he tends to destroy people in the first week. He's quite ruthless, usually. Mm-hmm. I mean, even I think the one year when he pulled out with a wrist injury or something, he won his, he won his first match something like 6-1, 6-2, 6-0. And his <laughs> second match, 6-1, 6-1, 6-love. And then he pulled out with... With wrist injury and, that, and, and and he said something like it was bothering me in my first two matches and I was like <laughs> it wasn't bothering you that much <laughs> um, so and, and he just tends to have you know he, 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 he cruises through I'd, I'd be interested to know like how many sets he's lost in the first round of the French like in this run of 13 that he's won yeah he's just never in close matches there is he was, was Isner a first round match that one I can't even remember now what round that was when he yeah. lost a couple of sets to him oh, I don't know that, that probably wasn't first round but it, it doesn't happen very often I think I think 
I think as well, like off him in the fourth round last year. I think. Yeah, I think as well, like uh, uh, regards to him playing the US, I don't think he particularly enjoys New York either. Generally, um, so I think he probably looked at it and thought, "Well, what what benefit is there in me going there?" Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, you say he doesn't enjoy it. Like he's he's been relatively successful there. Most people would say, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because they go like, you know, people, when when they talk about his slam record, they go, they're mainly at the French. Yeah, he's, he's won a couple of Wimbledon and a couple of US. <laughs> like, yeah, a couple of US, is, that's a career. You know, yeah. And it's like, and, and then like, and there's me here saying like, yeah, he doesn't really like it. It's like, yeah, he just won two of his 19 Grand Slams there. <laughs> um, just just to, to follow you up, George, on your Rafa Nadal first round at Roland Garros. Uh, John Isner, you're correct, was indeed in the first round when he went to five back in 2011. Um, I, I would usually say, can anyone guess the only other person to have taken first-round sets off Rafa Nadal Roland Garros? If you're listening and you know who that is, congratulations. Lads, I'm assuming you don't know. Um, I don't know, no. George, anything? I have absolutely no idea. And I just wanted to say before, I was going to guess Calvin's done Nadal out of two US Open titles here. He won, won four. four. He? <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, he did win. Uh, to be fair, he did win the easiest Grand Slam ever trademark. <laughs> in, where the the only person that's ever won a Grand Slam without beating anybody in the top twenty-five in the world. Yeah. 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 That, um, but no, James, I have no idea. Okay, so, that's very disappointing. I'd assume that you would have been able to pull out of your hat Daniel Brands. The uh, German six foot five player who actually took the first set off him in 2013 and was probably beaten in four. Uh, but yeah, there you go. That, that's a pub quiz question for the weirdest pub quiz in the world. The two people who have taken sets of Rafa Nadal in the first round of Roland Garros, John wow. Isner and Daniel Brown. Yeah. Did, did you have that up your sleeve before coming on the show? Oh, you just quickly research that now. Like I, I can't even find my laptop. I, I honestly, that's just. That's just the kind of thing I have hitting up my sleeve and think <laughs> wrong in the middle. I'm uh, not sure I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the French Open because we, we've kind of already moved on to it. The draw obviously came out a couple of hours ago, so we've had a bit of a chance to look at it. Uh, as I think you've already mentioned, Rafandel has got Igor Gerasimov, the Belarusian, in the first round, followed probably by Mackenzie McDonald, Dan Evans maybe in the third round. <laughs> if he beats Nishikori, maybe. Well, yeah, so that, that I mean, look, there, I don't even know where to start with this, George. Where do you want to start in the first round of the men's? Well, I, I actually wanted to play a game for the first round. Oh, because... okay, yeah, go on. Should we play a game? Yeah, so I, do it. I, I got pretty hyped by the first round um, in general. Um, so I thought you two could have a game where you'll take it in turns. I'm going to give you a round and one of you has to pick who's going to win the round. And then in our next podcast, we'll, we'll tally up the votes. So I've, I've picked seven men's and seven women's for good fun. Oh my How God. does that sound? Okay. It... Yeah. So who, who would like to go, right. I'm going to do a heads or tails. James, you're calling. I've, I've picked one of them in my head. Which one? <laughs> uh, tails never fails. It, it was heads. I'm afraid. So oh, Calvin what? gets first choice. Which, but James, that is not necessarily a bad thing because okay. it's it's going to be pretty tricky. Some of them. So we're going to start off with a tie. I'm sure we we'll want to spend a bit of time on after. But Andy Murray versus Stan Wawrinka. Who wins, Calvin? Uh, I think Murray wins that one. 
All right. So James, you've got Vavrinka, which to be um, honest is probably who I would have chosen. But yeah, I, I think I probably would have gone gone the same way. I mean, obviously it's a it's a nightmare draw for for Murray, really. I mean, I know he's a wild card, so he, he basically has to take what he's given. But in terms of matchup. I don't know. I mean, someone tell me how good a matchup that is for him. Well, I mean, I, I picked Murray on the premise that I thought Wawrinka uh, looked awful last week. Yeah. Um, like he did, didn't, you know, he, he looked like he'd been enjoying himself in the lockdown, which sort of <laughs> no, knowing Stan. But he always looks like that. He always <laughs> no, looks normally, because like he's stuff. normally he does always look like that because he, he he always enjoys himself. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Massetti played well. I think we'll discuss a bit later. But I watched that match, and Stan was pretty bad. He, I mean, I think probably of all the like, you know, because I think we would regard Stan in the top ten men's players of the last ten years. I think yeah. he's the one who has the most ability to look absolutely terrible. Oh, for sure, yeah. Like he's got, the, he's got these. Probably you could make a strong argument that of those ten players, he's got the highest top level and the lowest bottom level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He is a massive variance player. So I guess in that sense, Murray might feel, well, if I catch him on a bad day, I've got a shot of breezing through in straight sets. But I'm, I'm not unhappy to have Stan, put it that way. Uh, I think we'll, we'll, we'll carry on with the quick, quick fire ones. Oh, do you and want, then I'll come back. And then I'll come back. Right, go on, quick fire and then we'll come back. Right, because we'll then I'm going to give some poetic stuff for Murray because I've got a lot of poetic <laughs> things to say. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> so okay. quick fire number two Joanna Conter versus Coco Goff this is James's pick first Conter Goff oh uh, Conter Conter happy with Goff Calvin oh, neither of them are in great form are they so no. that was a tough one um, I just don't think Goff's played that well on clay that I can remember not the played one, much on it really I, I <laughs> might have taken Goff purely because she's got she's got real good hands um, and Conta doesn't like that. See, yeah. I, I told you, like picking first isn't necessarily a bad thing. You no, know? you're not. The wrong. non-pick can be quite good. All right, number number three, Dan Evans versus Kay Nishikori. Oh. So this is back to Calvin. Well, uh, I'm probably going to say Evans. Uh, yeah, I'll take that. I'll hugely take uh, that. <laughs> 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 I think that's a very generous pick, Calvin. But well, I mean, I, I know him, so he'll be into me if I pick his score. So, um, um, and I once told him that he was once in the room when I predicted that Novak Djokovic would never win another Grand Slam. And he's, he's, <laughs> what he's, year was that? That was when after he lost to Cecchinato that year. Um, right. He won the next and, one, didn't he? Well, yeah. Well, he was hugging <laughs> he was hugging trees in Hyde Park um, that same summer, um, and. Um, yeah, it was. I, I did come. I, I must say, and th- th- I was in the room with a few players, and they never let me forget it. Uh, but I did. <laughs> I did caveat it with, unless Djokovic gets his proper coach back, he will never win a slam. But ah. the first half of that sentence has been completely lost in time, <laughs> and, and, it, and it's it's just now remembered as Calvin said Djokovic would never win another slam. <laughs> okay. um, but no, I think yeah, I, I think it's close because purely I think Nishikori's been he's come back from injury, um, and and Dan actually I thought before he lost last week to um, Hercats he actually played a really good match. Mm. Um, Ke- Kenneth rightly pointing out that Goff did win French Open juniors, but uh, from my end I just meant she hadn't she hasn't played French Open main draw 
yeah, in the singles, women's um, contra, obviously a semi finalist last year. So you know, it's never you never quite know. But yeah, I think Goff's still a decent pick for that one. But moving on to number four, uh, pick, yeah, back to James's pick. We're we're on to one of Calvin's young favourites, Igor Swiatek, against last year's French Open finalist and Joe Conta stopper, Marketa Vondrasova, which I think is a great first round match. Oh, that is a great first round match. I was looking at Vondrasova the other day. Uh, I don't like it, but I'm going to take Vondrasova because it's just so Yeah, Calvin will be pleased. Calvin likes her. Yeah, so. I think she's she's class player as Fiatek. I'd take her, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, at least we're both happy. I mean, that's... Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, the the next one's... I, I think maybe a bit more of a straightforward pick, actually, this one in hindsight, but two two decent names for a first-round match. Um, you've got Roberto Batista Agu and Richard Gasquet. Oof. Is this me? This is you, yeah. Uh, Gasquet's in no form, is he? Hmm. Um, and he doesn't have the big French crowd behind him, which could have yeah. swung this one. Yeah, I'm not not say, that I'm meant uh, to be hinting uh, here, but and Batiste Ragu is not Clay's not his favourite service, so I'm going to take Batiste Ragu in that one. I think, yeah. I think, uh, I think that is the obvious choice. To be fair, yeah. that I'm was... not. I'm not pleased to be. I'm not pleased to be backing Gasquet in the first round of the French against the team. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> okay. With no uh, fans to fire him up. Well, I'm oh, sorry, with about 400 fans to fire him up. I'll tell you what was interesting, just just quickly, I'm moving slightly off topic, when there was that thing last week, about uh, a couple of weeks ago, when the, they listed all the times that Murray had come back from two sets down to beat somebody, I think it's ten times, is it, James? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I've just got that up on my sleeve, yeah. He's yeah, level yeah, with right. Federer. Yeah, and, and like, I looked at it, and I think there's only one against Gasquet there, and I'm thinking, I'm sure I've watched at least, like, 12, <laughs> 12 matches where Gasquet's been two sets to live up against Murray and blown it. <laughs> I thought I'd been at about three of them at Wimbledon, but um, but no, just one, apparently. So that surprised me. Um, okay, next one, we have Svetlana Kuznetsova against yeah. Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova. I can't remember who's picking first now. Is it who? It's just Calvin. James. Calvin. No, it's... I just picked Vondrasova. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, you did. Um, uh... No, 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 no. No, it is it's James, it's James. Calvin just picked... I just uh, picked Batista Rigo. Batista Rigo, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I've yeah, got the list coming good. down. So, Kuznetsova, two-time winner <laughs> versus Pavlyuchenkova. There's about three places in the rankings between them. Yeah, I actually did look at this the other day. Uh, well, sorry, I say the other day, about two hours ago when the draw came out, it just it it jumped out at me because I really like Svetlana Kuznetsova. I think she's very good. I like watching her, but I'm picking Pavlyuchenkova because Pavly. I mean, realistically, it, it I know she's had some success on clay, but it shouldn't be her surface because like clay for Kuznetsova, should it? Like it, like conceptually. No, she's not um, having it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not first with either. Of, oh, that's fifty-fifty for me. Yeah, so. yeah, it's a close one. So, yeah. and, and, mean, George. and Calvin, to be fair, I think this one's a bit, bit of a generous one from the coin toss for you. So this was the benefit <laughs> of winning this. But um, I, I, I just always quite enjoy Martin Fuksovic as a kind of random person <laughs> in there. So <laughs> honestly, it's a name I hear far too much from you for a bloke who is just a tennis player. <laughs> Um, uh, so it's Daniel Medvedev versus <laughs> Martin Fuchs. Oh, Which one, one do you want? 
Yeah, that's real tough. I, I, that's, yeah, I'm going to nudge towards Medvedev. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. I can't believe Really sticking my neck out on that. <laughs> James, you, you can thank me when Fuksovic stuns Medvedev in the first well, round. Fuksovic has won about one match for <laughs> the French Open in the last 10 years. Um, no, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Believe You know, James, he believe. literally, I've just checked it, he literally has won one match for the French Open <laughs> in 10 years. Uh, Unbelievable. Great, great pick. Someone, there had to be a benefit of winning the toss. Okay, yeah. There had to be one. Also, do you know who the only bloke he's ever been in the French Open is? No idea, Vasic, even though I'm his biggest fan. Vasic Pospisil. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I get the first pick this time. Who is it? You do. Um, it's a tricky one again, I think. Um, Annette Contevitz versus Caroline Garcia. Oh, they are both players are quite like, weirdly. Mm, I mean, so usually, if there was a, okay, here we go. I'll try and put some logic on it. If there was a crowd, I'd be going Garcia, just on the basis that you know French crowd. Yeah, and I think she's won the doubles at the French Open, so that feels like a thing. But uh, on the basis that there is basically no crowd, I'm going Annette Contavite. And actually, she's played some good tennis this year, and she played quite well the Aussie. So, yeah. Contavite. I think I think that's probably where I'd have gone as well, but uh, not a bad one for you to have Calvin. I still think. Yeah, I would have chosen Contavite as well, but yeah, fair enough. Um, I think again, this one might be a bit generous. Wow! Wow! But um, I I do I do always have a bit of a sneaking suspicion about Jaume Munar. So I've put him in. I've put him in. <laughs> so he, and he's o- he's only playing Stefano Sissipas. So who, which way are you going there, Calvin? I think Munar won about one match in fourteen months or something maybe, like that. Maybe, he's but on, he's quite good on clay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm again. I, it's a close one, but I'm, I'm going to take Sissipas. <laughs> oh, you picked Sissipas over world number hundred and nine, Halme Munar. Yeah, that, yeah. that is bold. You, right. you guys are going to come crying to me next week when Sissipas and Medvedev are out in the first round. Oh, I'll, be I'll be delighted, mate. I won't be crying. <laughs> um, okay, James, for you, I've got Venus Williams against Anna Karolina Schmidlova, who you might remember absolutely blew uh, a golden opportunity against Naomi Osaka when she went six love and then serve for the match twice in the second set before losing 6-1 in the third. So she has a big French open bottle under her belt before. I Who are you going to, for? I have to admit that what you've just told me is literally the only thing I know about <laughs> Anna Karolina Schmedlova. Schmedlova. Yeah. Um, her Wikipedia page tells me that she's a Slovakian tennis player, which, again, is... Is a level of knowledge I didn't have. Um, <laughs> Venus Williams in her forties now. Not yeah, not no, so I good on clay. <laughs> You've heard of her. Venus. I remember yeah. Venus Williams. She's, she's played a bit. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm going to take Venus, although I feel like she has lost a lot of matches this year. But equally, who am I to bet against a Williams sister of any kind? So. Uh, I, I actually think Schmidlover is going to win that. That's my rogue prediction of this round. That's the only time I'm sticking my neck out. You're so. probably the only person in the world who's bothered <laughs> to predict that match. Everyone else is like, yeah, who cares? Um, okay, back to Calvin. And I, I, 
I think this is again a bit of a gimme, but it is a great what? first round. Ra- it, 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 it is a great first round tie. Um, Dominic team, Marin Cilic. Uh, yeah, that's t- teams winning that one. Yeah, it's team. But it... like, are you kidding me? Marin Cilic on clay. Yeah, but that's like, a great first rounder, isn't it? And, and, and team might be a bit cold. Lost to Rudd the other week. Yeah, Casper Ruud's in good form. Casper Ruud, he's on fire. I think he's gone to the semi-finals of uh, wherever they're playing now, Hamburg. I think tonight. Great, excellent, great. Yeah. You picked the old. You picked a Serbian volleyer against one of the best clay court players of the twenty-first century. <laughs> I've gone. Oh, lads, who do you think is going to win that? Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But... You're an idiot. No, I think team's going to win that one. But do yeah. I get do I get one more pick? Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there are three matches to go. Okay, but, okay. Uh, oh, I've got two of the last three. That's something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure you'll be particularly pleased with the either oh, that you have. The, these three are all quite hard to be fair. But um, we've got Heather Watson versus Fiona Ferro. Ferro, I'm never picking Heather Watson. I'm just like I like Heather Watson as a person. I think she's quite good fun. Uh, but I'm never backing her in a Grand Slam match. Okay. That's, it's just one of those rules, you know. It's like never back Everton. Never back Everton. You can't trust them. Yeah, I, I, I think to be fair, I would be taking Ferro in that match. But again, without the French crowd, that's a chance for Watson. Um, okay, th- this one is a tough one, Calvin. Oh yeah, Novak Djokovic or. Yeah, yeah. I, I left all of them out. I thought I was. <laughs> I thought I was leaving the best ones in there, but I feel. Sp- a bit uh, scorned here by some of these picks. But, uh, okay, Yannick Sinner versus David Goffin. Oh, that's great. That's Oof. great to ask Calvin that, because I know his feelings on Yannick Sinner. Yeah, yeah. but he's been... This Goffin's he's... a tough match, though. Yeah, I'm actually going to take Goffin there. No! Well, Sinner's no. been in... He's not been in great form, has he, since, no, since we sort of thought he was really going to take off. I, I think... If, I've, I've watched a couple of his matches. I think a few of the players have figured out that his his movement is not quite at the same level as ball striking. Just, just mm. to say, he did beat Sissipas last week. I mean... Yeah, yeah, fair. <laughs> the, yeah. You know, he's not in... Not in no, but I think... Not I, catching I, up in five at, yeah, it's at difficult to say. It's difficult to say he's not been in... It's not difficult to say he's not been in good form because we've had such a weird year, but... Um, I, yeah, I, the, I, word, the word form is almost irrelevant at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's so weird. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I think, oh, I, I've put that the wrong way down. So you're actually you're snubbing your favourite kind of Calvin. Well, yeah, that's, uh, just at the present time for for right now. I think Goffin's been in decent form. So yeah, uh, fair enough. I'll take him. Fair enough. Well, I think lose, I think j- Casper Rudd, but that's all right. It's fine. Okay, <laughs> Rudd was in good form. Though. Yeah, I was going to say Rudd's <laughs> playing really well. I think James Rudd is James's to, new Yvonne Lendl here. I've got, to stop, <laughs> I've got to stop calling him Casper Rudd because I keep thinking he's going to like turn into the Home Secretary. At some point, <laughs> um, and and the final one, James, is a really easy one for you to predict. It's uh, Laura Siegmund versus Christina Mladenovic. Excuse me. <laughs> like, are you actually asking me that question? <laughs> Um, the pop, the popcorn match. <laughs> I mean, I think that'd be quite a good match. Yeah, for, for the I, tennis purist, I think. That, I'm a big a fan one. of Christine Landvik. I think you know that. Um, if if, but, if there were any fans allowed on the outside courts, I don't oh, think they'd be flocking around that much. <laughs> I'm going to take Seedman because 
I do actually think that Christina Miladovic basically enters singles matches at Grand Slam these days just because she can rather than because she's trying to win them. It's like, well, I'm going to be here for the doubles later in the week, so I might as well play singles. Poor Kiki. Poor Kiki. Well, it's um, true, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. Like, she, she's not actually going to, like... Like, she doesn't even... I know she plays singles, but... Like without like without being too flippant, like she genuinely hasn't really made it past the third round of a Grand Slam in the singles for about two years. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it was she's a doubles, pretty. She's a doubles player, basically. She, she's probably a better doubles player, but she, she's not a bad singles player. She had she had a, obviously probably one of the most gut wrenching defeats you're ever gonna have at the US Open, so that she probably has been mentally knocked back a bit by that as well. So mm. probably think Siegmund is. Is the right pick there? You'll be pleased to hear that was the end of my my fun game. George's so, fun game. As that was a fun game, forever, as it now will forever be known. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> but I, I, just just to go back to Marian Vavrinka, so I can oh, wax sorry, lyrical yeah, and be a little bit. Po- you've got some poems. Poetical that, stuff. Well, I was just I was just you know, it, it is just a fantastic draw in so many ways, isn't it? I mean, you've got Vavrinka who beat Murray in 2017 in that massive five-set match. Murray's hip, he said on his own Instagram, you know, that, that was the last time my hip properly worked. And yeah. then Vavrinka's career is also kind of, it kind of went down the toilet for him straight after that French Open as well. So you had both of these great champions, yes. both won three majors, coming together, damaging their careers for so long, working their way back. They play each other in that Antwerp final. Um, which Murray does win. And then the first time Murray's back on clay, it's a, a rematch of this crazy match that happened three years ago. I think it's just, there's so much, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a writer's dream in many ways, this match. I think it's going to be great fun. Um, Calvin, and... Calvin, tell us tell us how this game matches up for, for Murray now. And also for Vavrinka now, I know we kind of joked about he's he's probably the best player with a stinker in his locker. But in terms of tactics, how do these two match up against each other? I, th- I think it's a decent matchup for Murray. Um, I think he's got his he- the head-to-head's well in his favour. Is it George? Who Murray? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It definitely, yeah, it certainly is. Yeah, I think what, what I mean, Murray is is one of, if not the best in the world, at, at finding people's bottom level. That yeah, he, he manages to sort of put the put the ball in the place where the players don't want it the most. Um, and I think that, that that sort of suits him well against Wawrinka. Um, Wawrinka sort of likes to set and scream winners, and Murray mm-hmm. will be sort of throwing in his slices and getting him on the run and that kind of thing, and um, I think, providing he's fully fit, I, I do think Murray will win that one. Mm. Um, I feel like we almost have, well, other than George's fun game, um, emphasis on the word fun there, uh, <laughs> we... We almost haven't talked about the women's draw enough. I mean, it's one of those weird things where, you know, we always say when we're prepping for these, oh, we'll wait for the draw, you know, so we can work out how things are going to go. But women's tennis is so unpredictable that it's almost irrelevant, isn't it? Like, (laughs) it's just like the draw comes out and you sort of go, yeah, well, let's wait until the second week and see who's there. Is that fair, George? Well, Well, James, luckily for you both. I have been doing my predictions this evening. So I have my yeah, predicted quarterfinals, term, <laughs> quarterfinals, semifinals and finals. So I, I think 
the interesting thing about the women's draw is that a lot of the players I thought w- would have had in my head as kind of title contenders have kind of landed in that top half. Like, you know, right. someone like a Kiki Burton's is in the same quarter as a Halep, just someone who might kind of pop out of nowhere. Um, so that is my first quarter final that I'm predicting Halep versus Burton's, which okay. I think we'd all agree that'd be a pretty good match. Yeah, um, we'd all watch it. Svitolina versus Azarenka. I've gone for the second one. Um, Azarenka. Serena. Where's Serena going? She, so she's going out to Azarenka to me in the um, last yeah, sixteen. I think. That. I think Azarenka pumps Kenin Love and Love last week, and then yeah. lost to Muguruza. Um, I mean, that was the result that I posted in our group and said, "What on earth is going on there?" And yeah, is that just a, one of those weird things that happens? She, she, I mean, she's in good form, Azarenka. I mean, I, to be honest, I, I, I didn't watch the match. I only saw the score. I was I was on holiday at that point. Um, so I, I can't give you a tactical rundown of what happened. But, you know, Azarenka's playing really, really well and has kind of seeming seamlessly made the transition to Clay. So I, I don't see any reason to not back her to kind of carry that on and get to the quarterfinals. I, ha- I have also boldly put Kennan in the quarterfinals, which may come back to bite me, but... Um, <laughs> that, that's extremely uh, bold. But she, um, you know, she did beat Serena there last year, and, you know, again, I, I just think she's actually got a pretty pretty good little section there, so I think she'll do okay. And I've gone for Muguruza to face her in the quarterfinals, who I think is quietly having a, a really good year, actually, Muguruza. Um yeah. She lost to Pironkova in the US Open um, second round, which obviously looked like a complete freak at the time. But Pironkova went on to have a really good tournament. Um, and Magruza hadn't really played on hard before that. So I, I think she had kind of just gone for a little bit of match practice to get her ready. But she looked quite sharp in Rome. Um, I mean, the, the, only thing, to Halep. the only thing that people might throw up is she potentially has Jen Brady in the third round. Yeah, and, and, and we spoke a little bit about Jen Brady last week. Again, I she's so hard to pick. About her. I spoke about her, I should point out, before <laughs> she had a good run, because I haven't yeah. had the chance to brag about this yet. <laughs> so I, I was talking about her before she had a good run, partly because Greg Rosetsky had talked her up to me, but also just because I thought she's a good player, and you know, Greg had kind of emboldened me in that. Um, but yeah, George, her chances on clay? Well, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, we, we spoke about her a little bit last week. There's no reason why she shouldn't be a really good clay court player, but it's just about the movement. And to be perfectly yeah. honest, because she's never been beyond the second round of most majors before this um, US Open, I, I don't know how she moves on clay. So, so I can't really tell you. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's a bit of an asterisk there, but but I'm going for Muguruza Kenin. And then my final set of quarterfinalists in the bottom half uh, Kvitova and Stevens um, and I am not backing either of them particularly strongly but they are the people I've gone for um, I mean with... Stevens has got some players in her I mean she's obviously in Carolina yeah she's got Pliskova third round um, Pliskova obviously retired against Halep and generally can have a bit of a wobble at Grand Slams um, can so... I just pick out just because you pointed me to the bottom of the women's draw that Carolina Pliskova's second round opponent. Yeah, Ostapenko, isn't it? Either Ostapenko <clears throat> or Madison Brengel. Like, I know Madison Brengel's not the world's best player, but I would watch that first round match for two unseeded players, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's a good, good little match. I mean, Ostapenko, you just have no idea who's going to turn up. Really. Yeah, and I love that. Um, so, you know, every, every single pick in the bottom half, there was quite a big caveat, I think. Um, but yeah, I, 
And then I'm going Halep, Svitolina, Muguruza, Kvitova semi-finals. And I'm going for a Halep, Muguruza final. So that's that's my women's predictions. Calvin, what, tell me about a Halep, Muguruza final. What would that look like? Um, yeah, you'd have to say that, again, it, the women's tournaments tend to be very unpredictable. But you'd have to say that they're probably the two best clay court players in the world, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's hard, it's hard yeah. to disagree with that. I mean, yeah. I, I always think that you know the women's game, it, it, because you, we always say how unpredictable it is. I think that's a weakness. Like I'm not saying it's a problem. Well, no, I'm saying it is a problem because generally, what I find with sport, and I work across a lot of sports, is that fans like predictability to an extent. They like well, to be able to support the same team over and over again, and the same with players. I think the problem is... Go on, sorry, James. I'm no, no, no. Calvin, go on. Pirate. No, I, th- I think it's sort of... It, it's the old sort of FA Cup analogy, isn't it? That when you get... You know, we like... People like upsets. They like yeah. underdogs to win. The problem then comes when you get to the semi-finals and it's like Man City against Blackpool <laughs> and uh, Stoke against Barnsley. Yeah. And you think, right, yeah, there's no point in this tournament now. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I think it, it, that's the kind of problem that women's tennis has. It kind of... You know, the matches tend to be good or, or this is what it's had a problem. It's had this problem in the last sort of seven or eight years. The matches tend to be good. But then when it gets to the, the back end of the tournament, you need to have a, an emotional connection to one of the players. And mm. as we've seen in men's tennis, uh, some people have too much of an emotional connection. But a lot of the players who come through in the women's that that you don't the to the casual observer there's not a great deal that you'd want to catch there's not you're not going to be flicking channels and see what's on and think oh, I'll I'll watch that match today and it, it can sometimes be the semis of a slam yeah yeah I I, I, I what I was going to say is that actually it, it you know someone like Muguruza what I love about her is is irrespective of whether you've got a connection to her I think you can develop one because she she plays aggressive tennis she's come forward tennis player and. If she can be regularly there or thereabouts, I think people would get behind her, George. I don't know if you'd agree. Yeah, I think she's definitely one of those people who does kind of have some star quality. The, the thing that's just not been there for her has been the consistency of results. But Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought for some time that she, she should be the best tennis player in the world. Yeah. The best women's tennis player in the world. That's a gr- yeah, yeah, 100%. I'm right there with you. I was just going to add, as a total aside, but just some kind of relatively breaking news here. It's looking quite bad news for the French Open tonight that I don't think they're going to be able to have fans um, at all. Yeah, I've just seen that as well, yeah. So Um, we had Guy Fourguet earlier um, saying in a press conference he was pretty certain they would be allowed to have the 5,000 they were hoping for, but they've now been told... It's just going to be 1,000 on-site, and that includes all the fans, players, and everyone accredited, which, as we all know, that is pretty close to 1,000. So, so it's basically no fans. I'm pretty sure there won't be any fans now, um, yeah. Which, I mean, yeah you think it's, it's got to the stage there where you think, is there any, like you say, that's probably going to be at the most about 120 fans, and you think, well, is there, is there really any point in that? Yeah. I mean, so, how, like, that's obviously a huge blow and, you know, sort of... In the medium term, we were hoping this would be a, a kind of beginning of the restart. How much of a difference do we think it made in New York that there weren't any fans? I think it, I think 
it made a huge difference, especially in New York. I think that's the that's the slam where the fans play the biggest part. Mm. Um, and I again, I we had the, we don't want to get back into the debate of whether it counts as an actual slam, but <laughs> we definitely do not want to get back. Into <laughs> I just think one of the sort of elements of winning a major is is sort of is being that is one of the the elements that 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 makes it tough to win a major. The pressure that the crowd put on there, isn't it? So I think without them, you're just playing on another tennis court and it's best of five instead of best of three. Mm. I mean, uh, some more... I remember when the French Open announced that they were expecting to have, I think, 20,000 fans a day into into Roland Garros. Yeah. I yeah. Sort of, uh, quite flippantly tweeted, you know, Roland, uh, French Open authorities have optimistic view of ticket sales. But, you know, in a less flippant way... The French Open is the one where we think the crowd has the least influence, isn't it? Not for those Andy, Frenchies yeah, in the yeah. first round. <laughs> yeah. But beyond that, like, you know, at the latter stages, once we've got rid of all the French players. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to judge, isn't it? I, mean, I wouldn't say the Wimbledon crowd has a massive impact on results, no, to be honest. No, Not all of them. Unbelievable. I know, that, I know that's... That's probably quite a, a bad thing to say. but You'll you know. have your passport revoked for that. I'll arrange it. <laughs> Wimbledon has many redeeming features, but the crowd isn't it. They're so irrelevant that um, Djokovic actually thought they were cheering for him last year. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and, and that was about as you know nasty as it gets, really, that, from the crowd, in terms of I mean, them having an impact. Yeah, like, yeah. That and the Edmund match, I remember quite clearly... Um, you know, yeah, they were they were quite against him in that. Um, but yeah, I I think I think the French they can. Yeah, I always found it like I'm, I mean, sort of sort of growing up when you know it was always sort of I was always told that the Wimbledon that the Wimbledon crowd were the most polite crowd and most sporting crowd in that they they only clapped winners and this kind of thing. And that was for the first few years because there were never any Brits really on centre court. <laughs> and then, then when Tim Hemman started coming on it, they were cheering double faults and everything. And it's like, right, right, right. So they were, they were polite when they had no horse in the race. <laughs> um, but now we're cheering absolutely, you know, double faults, like missed <laughs> smashes and everything. Yeah. yeah. I remember when he played Paul Harhouse, it was pretty terrible. <laughs> it's easy to be polite when you don't have a dog in the race. Yeah, exactly. Um, I suppose we should do some sort of predictions, really, because George loves that stuff. I do love um, that. Like, I, I'm not going to ask for anything more complicated than the men's winner and the women's winner. Uh, George, I know you will have already thought about this, so I'm going to start with you. George, give me your men's winner and why, and your women's winner and why. The the women's winner is more clear-cut for me at the minute. That's Halep. Oh, wow. That's Halep. Um, and I, I suspect... We might all say Halep, to be honest. Um, the men's, after the draw, I, I, I said last week, where team lands is the most important thing for me. And he's in Rafa's side. Team, the one glimpse of hope Nadal has, I think, is that team actually has a real stinker of a draw. Um, like, he's, I have written this down, so he's got to play. Chilich, Apelka, Rude, one of Vavrinka, Murray, Ogier, Aliassime, Schwartzman, then Nadal, like that, that, that isn't easy. He might get a few kind of miles in the tank there. Um, so I, I think Nadal will get to the final with Novak, but I, I think Djokovic has got Nadal's number really. So I, I'm, I'm going to go for Djokovic to win it. George has changed since last week. 
I changed. I, I did say I did say where team goes would yeah, would yeah. fling it for me. So that's that's where I'm, I'm going. I'm going to be boring, um, James, and I'm I picked them both last week. I'm sticking with them, Djokovic and uh, Halep. Uh, the women's draw. I'm I'm amazed that you're all so certain, given like what we know about women's tennis. Like, I'd love to just sort of like pull a name out of the hat and be like, oh, I don't know, Parmentier. (laughs) Take Schmidl over, James, after your love affair with her earlier. (laughs) I mean, I I was just sort of scraping through the draw just now and like trying to find some sort of logic. You you know when you're trying to pick a Grand National winner? You don't just want to pin stick. You sort of want to look like you know what you're talking about. That's what I feel like when I'm looking at the women's draw. Um, I'd love Garbini Muguruza to win it. Like, I, I, and I, I, I can only really pick with my heart at this point because I think she's a cracking player and I think it would be great for women's tennis if she did win it. And that's about all I can do. Um, as for the men's draw, I, I wrote a piece during the Australian Open... <laughs> I thought you were going to bring up Alcaraz then. I was about to tell you, he's not in the draw, James. No, uh, if you haven't already read my feature on Carlos Alcaraz, the world's second highest ranked teenager, please do head over to inews.co.uk and give it a read. Uh, but unfortunately, he didn't qualify for the French Open because he bottled it at match point in the qualifying. Um, I can back up James' time there. It's a very good piece and Alcaraz will be a superstar. So it's worth reading right now. <laughs> There you go. And he's also being coached by Juan Carlos Ferreira, who was yeah. kind enough to give me a few minutes of his time as well. Um, but that's obviously not who I'm picking for men. <laughs> no, what I was going to say is that I wrote a piece about Dominic Team at the Australian Open uh, earlier this year saying that he had, he'd made a real point. And I think that what you've seen with Team, and it, it's almost a cliche to say it because of his Grand Slam final record, is a, a progression. He has constantly got better. And I think now that he isn't necessarily having the backside flogged out of him by his schedule quite so much, he has come to September, October in a a year, and he has some energy left. I think Dominic Team can win two Grand Slams in a row. I genuinely think that, because I think he's got both the mental fortitude and the physical fortitude, and he's never had that before. Right. Are, you, are you saying this that he's going through Nadal and then Djokovic to win this? I think it's possible. I think he, I, uh, George, what I don't think you can underestimate is that Dominic team has been through hell. Like, he has been, <laughs> is this Gunter Bresnik we're about exactly. to get <laughs> He's had, had Gunter Bresnik up his backside for 10 years. No one has had that kind of pressure on him. Novak Djokovic has had four blokes around him who think that the sun shines out of him. Rafa Nadal had his, has had his uncle making him play left-handed. Dominic teams like Gunter Bresnik making him run up mountains carrying boulders. Like <laughs> no one has had to go through this, and I just I just think it's his time. I think he's going to win everything for about five years because, frankly, he he he's suffered, man. He look at his eyes. He has suffered. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, he, he like, could. Like, he could. It could, yeah, good. and it's good of you to pick different people to me and Calvin. Like that is, well, that's that is good. We didn't all go for the same picks. That well, I good. couldn't speak of that as you well know, George. It's not yeah. in my nature. I'm yeah. a contrarian at heart. Yeah, uh, but fortunately, in two weeks' time or two and a half weeks' time, we'll all know whether I was right or wrong. I'm sure 
we three will convene again midway through the French Open, by which point all of our picks will probably be eliminated and we're trying to pick between, well, Parmentier and, I don't know, Brengel. Um, and we can try and work out... <laughs> you never know, Djokovic might leather another line judge or something. I mean, Well, or, of course, it was at the French a couple of years ago when it was only a, a well-footed line judge avoiding his racket. Yeah. Well, he melted a racket last week as well, didn't he? Did he? Um, you know, so it's not like he's not like he's uh, really calmed down too much since New York. In- incredibly, we haven't even talked about the new balls. Oh, oh yeah, what a, what a shame! What a shame! <laughs> let, 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 let's talk about them a week in when yeah. we've yeah. seen what an yeah, impact yeah. they've had. Yeah, when Nadal's out in the first round to Garazimov or whoever he's playing, <laughs> someone will blame <laughs> the Wilson balls, lads. It's been great to have the three of us. Uh, can we have a quick sort of note on Liam Brody? Oh my god! So much about how we had to mention it, Calvin. The floor is yours. No, I, I think it, you know I, can't, I couldn't be more happy for him. Uh, he's somebody who uh, I, I know Liam relatively well, and as a fourteen to sixteen year old, he was the best fourteen to six year old I've seen, uh, the best British fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old I've ever seen. Um, and for one reason or another, it, 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 it hasn't quite turned out yet how we thought it would. But um, he's never stopped, and he's, he's, he's an absolute warrior on the court. And Clay's not his favourite surface, uh, and he's had a couple. Even recently, recently the Battle of the Brits, he had some issues with his game, and the the rate that he's managed to turn that round and qualify for a Grand Slam is is I think quite phenomenal. Yeah, he beat Mark Polmans in the third round of qualifying. Uh, to reach, I think I'm right in saying, his first Grand Slam main draw outside of Wimbledon. Yeah. Um, I and mean, in, in terms of achievement, I, I guess Liam Brody's probably a name that a lot of tennis fans in Britain will have heard before because, you know, oh, here are the eight Brits who are in the first round of Wimbledon because he's picked up yeah. on the wild cards. But I suppose this is still a massive achievement for him because it's not Wimbledon. Yeah, and also not his favourite surface. Um, yeah. I think you know he's 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 pretty he's very good outdoor hard player as well. Um, yeah. But um, he's he's just a phenomenal competitor. I mean, sort of quick quick story. Um, a player I coached played against Liam um, a couple years ago now, about eighteen months ago. Sorry, and he was a junior. He was a very good junior, um, and he was he was a set set up on Liam uh, and the close second set and. Liam was every favourite, um, but and a mate of mine texts me saying, "Is is Liam getting mad? Is he losing his head?" And because he was obviously losing to a junior, and I said, "No, he actually looks like he's enjoying it," and that's the biggest compliment I can pay him. Normal in normal circumstances, the guy was ranked 190 in the world at the time. You'd think he'd have been getting really sort of really angst with himself, but he wasn't. He just looked like he was enjoying being in a close tennis match, and that's the way that he plays. Can I just say as well, if, if Liam Brody is still in the draw by the time we next meet, we can dedicate half the show to him. Well, yeah. Um, who does he play, by the way? <laughs> well, it's not, it's not announced. Yeah. Yet. Oh, of course. Be yeah, the qualifiers dropped yeah. in. Could be yeah. Cam Norrie. He's, he's got qualifier oh. round one, Cam Norrie. That would be quite a good one. Yeah. It could um, be, I mean, it could be. I'll just run you through the players he could have. Uh, Mackenzie McDonald, Andreas Seppi, um, Finland's Russo... I can't even pronounce it. Rusevuri, who... That's uh, exactly who. The same player who I've just mentioned actually played Rusevuri about a week before Liam Brody last time. <laughs> Thank so. you. There we go. Uh, Alex Dimino, um, Pierre Hugues, Herbert, uh, 
uh, Riley Apelka. I mean, there's some currently Mute, Jeremy Shardy. This, this well, I'll tell you what. In there. Well, I'll tell you what. Yeah. He will want. Well, I'm not. I wouldn't like to say what he would want, but if I were in Liam Brody's position, I would love the chance to take on Mackenzie McDonald round one and have a crack at Rafa round two. That would be a pretty good reward for coming through qualifying. I think he quite fancy Chardy as well, who seems to be in that sort of stage of his career, what James just mentioned, of he plays the singles main draws because he can. Yeah. And no fans as well. They always get Chardy over the line, so... Yeah. <laughs> Going on about the fans. And he knows um, Chardy pretty well, because of course Chardy lives in London, so... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then he could maybe take Borna Chorich in the second round, who, frankly, is vulnerable to almost anyone. Uh, They're not the worst draws in the world, the ones that you've just listed. No, 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 it's good. Yeah, there's plenty in there. And I didn't even list, there. there is an all-qualifier first-round draw there as well. Okay. You know... Knowing Liam Calvin very quickly, I mean, like, if he he got the chance to play, like, beat McDonald's and then play a raffer on Chatrier, is that the sort of thing he wants to, like, play on the big stadiums? Or is he someone who wants an easier draw to kind of try and get to the fourth round, you know what I mean? Like, what, where, where would that stand in his career, um, that sort of opportunity? Well, he's played Murray on centre court Wimbledon as well, I yeah. think. So, yeah. um, no, I think, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll go and compete. That's the thing with Liam. He'll, if you put him on on a 15K Futures or a British Tour event, well, I mean, he played, he played, he won the, the, the St. George's Pro Series a few weeks ago and, and he, he competes the same whichever court he's on. So, I don't think he'll bother him. Fair enough. Lads, um, I think we should call it a day. We've been here far too long already. And it's late. Yeah, cheers, lads. Good chat. Time, honestly. <laughs> um, it's very late. We'll be back in the middle of the French Open. Thanks very much for listening, if indeed you are. Um, if you're listening on iTunes or on Spotify, please do leave us a rating and a review. Please make it a nice one. If you've got a bad review, please directly message it to George Belshaw on Twitter. I'm <laughs> um, used to that sort of thing. Uh, Otherwise, we'll see you probably in the middle of the French Open. And thanks very much for listening. Thanks, guys. guys. See you later. Bye-bye. Cheers, lads. Speak to you later. Sports Social Podcast Network.